0: Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. How are you doing?
1: I'm fine. How are you doing? I am fine. How are you doing?
0: And good. Are you able to hear me OK?
1: I can hear you. OK.
0: Yeah. A lot of background noise here at the moment. Ah, so we uh, had some good chats this week. And I think we're converging on a similar set of problems in that, just to review, we're talking about how to build a better humanity, better society. And clearly, we need the right values, which is basically figuring out values, right, and not optimize for our own self or our own local group at
1: the expense of others. You cut off there a little bit.
0: Oh, sorry. I was saying that, you know, the overall vision of, uh, I guess we're calling it forking humanity, right, is to take what is good about the past, but really try to build a new vision of humanity. Uh, Mm You still with me? Yeah. And so we talked about the importance of pro-social values and pro-social status gains to encourage people to make sure that we're not just optimizing for ourselves or our own small group, but uh, developing ourselves in ways that benefit others. Correct. Right. So, and we discussed the the problem is, is, of course, even if you have the right values, it doesn't mean you're always living up to them. You know, one because sometimes people are selfish and uh, don't care, but also even if you're well intentioned, it doesn't always mean you're doing the right thing. Which is why we need a broader net of accountability and feedback to ensure that we're all helping each other do the right thing yes, correct, mm-hmm. right, and I think where we ended last week was um, you know there's many constraints, but the biggest one is actually information, in that we don't i mean we can't even pay attention to everything we experience and do much of everything everyone else experiences and does, and so uh the most recent example we were discussing in the chat was about you have a corporation or any community really that is providing something of value to others. And you want the stakeholders to be able to ensure that that organization, that, that organism is living up to its promises. And this led to a question of, I think, Masnick's impossibility theorem that all content filtering sucks, right? Is that you either, uh, have too many false negatives um um and you're you're missing important information or, or, or you're being overwhelmed or you have too many false positives and you're not getting the right information i forget which is which anyway right either you're getting too much bad information or too little good information and it's always going to be hard but we can certainly do way better than we do now but one ways we could do better is if we had much smarter and more accessible Information technology uh which led us into a conversation that you and I have not had yet, uh but something that we're both passionate about, which is um what would a more humane information technology uh look like, and what could that be that would enable us to at least get vastly better trade offs than we have to deal with now. So do you want to share kind of what you've been thinking at and and the the perspective you're bringing to it? Because I'm usually the one who talks too much. Um,
1: yes. Yeah, so talking about uh, uh, better information technology, which I can compare it with uh, the introduction of literature, um, you know, in, in the past centuries. You know, before that, um, or actually the the bounded book. Before books, uh, only the elite could, can, could control knowledge and information. Um, so, what you
0: really mean is the printing press, right? Uh,
1: the Mass production yeah, the,
0: of, of printed books.
1: Printed books and um, the access to uh, for to the masses uh, of the ability to write. You know, uh, before you know, most people didn't read or write but uh, we know we moved to a point where you know reading and writing is is a, a, something that everybody has or at least the vast majority so when people can act when most people could produce literature them, themselves that's when uh, information uh, spread you know really widely and uh, the, the the views and, and, and ideals of everyone were accessible to everyone, not just to the um you know the priests or the people with money so that democratized information now we have right, so let me
0: let me let me generalize that to to say that that uh increasing access to the uh democ- democratizing access to the means of communication uh is a very powerful force um I do wanna put in the caveat is that pretty much every introduction of a new technology led to a massive war, right? Because, you know, we talk about, you know, it's easy to kill a bad thing, it's hard to replace it with a better one. What you find is uh, the old system is rotten and corrupt, but it preserves a degree of stability.
1: And historically
0: new technology disrupts that, which then leads to a period of violent conflict. So the printing press led to the Hundred Years' War. Uh, radio led to uh, World War One, uh, or you know, it, it, actually, radio really led to the rise of fascism in Europe and the New Deal in America. Um, and you know, these powers are incredible, and they can be used for both good and ill. And it's a uh, cautionary tale to think about. Uh, yes, we like the idea, mean, this is one thing I just feel like I should say, in South Korea Valley, we tend to always assume the technology will be used for good, but the fact of the matter is, is that every technology can and will be used for both good and evil. And so I agree with you, we need to democratize access to these tools and technology, but we need to be really mindful uh, of the dark side of that.
1: Yeah, but then um, how can you um, avoid it, right? Right. Um... You know computing came to uh help you know uh point uh guns to uh to the enemy right uh and and to um, provide information to generals and the military to be more effective killers so how can you stop that i even right, i mean you know.
0: i think the short answer is that in the short run democratizing access uh gives uh, a lot of our worst impulses room to grow, and it's really—I guess—it's back to the question of values. I think the, uh, the actually the, the word, frankly, is institutions. Is in that uh, you have to build institutions and norms that understand both the power and peril of the new technologies and channel that energy in constructive ways. And uh, that's not easy, and it's not without its own risks and dangers. But historically, that's really been the only way forward. Is that you have to find, and and this is the problem, of course, is that the institutions and structures you create to solve the problems of the last wave of innovation become the legacy systems that make it hard <laughs> to produce the next new thing. So. The ideal thing is, this, is, is, if you, you know, the Holy Grail is this sort of self-renewing system that is always able to uh, sort of uh, welcome the seeds of its own creative destruction. But maybe we'll save that for a later podcast. But I, I assume what you're going towards is like, that your dream is to democratize, democratize, democratize access to the tools of artificial intelligence and information technology, so that not just the existing elite can control uh you know those levers and have those advantages in terms of uh, extending their reach and efficiency
1: yes that is correct and uh you know making sure that individuals have the power to uh uh, define their own experiences right now we um, delegate that to the device manufacturers operating system manufacturers app developers and you know we just get what they offer us, and and you know we have to live with that. And my view is that uh, we have to make sure that everyone can, uh, instead of program a computer, they can teach their devices how to manage their own lives. You know we don't need to. You know if I buy a device, um, I you know, I don't like the way that device processes my notes or whatever. I should have the power to specify how I want my notes to be processed. Right now I have to live with whatever manufacturers or software developer decides is the best experience. But if I don't agree with that, I have no choice. I in, my view is that people must have the choice to uh, uh easily, just like you can write a letter, uh teach their devices or their technology how to process their information. And and that involves um you know making sure that the software underneath is very intelligent is uh, can process knowledge not just text and can uh, infer you know uh, uh, further knowledge and provide helpful assistance to the humans that um uh, that it serves so um yeah that's the the main um view of my view of technology, which includes hardware, software, and the policies and practices that uh, control that.
0: Right, so let me um, summarize. So I think the, so this reminds me a lot of Richard Stallman, who I assume you're familiar with. Yeah. The yeah. software movement. But yes. his basic premise was that every software you use should be hackable by you. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a noble goal and has much to recommend it, I think the uh, there's been historically a few challenges with that approach, right? One, which is the most philosophical one, is that there is such a thing as network effects in the sense that if more people are using the same thing, it's a lot easier to manage and scale and build on top of it. So Windows, which is a software that everyone loves to hate, including me, and Microsoft, which is a company that, at least in the past, everyone loved to hate in the technology side, you know, they have many sins for which they will answer. But one really good thing that they did, which had never occurred before and really has never occurred since, is that basically all the world was running one stable, well-defined interface stable and all well fine being very loosely used terms here, but about it was really easy for other people to build innovation on top of it. Like one of the things that Bill Gates said that I thought was actually quite humane, which he said, the great thing about Windows is that we're building an enormous ecosystem of which we only capture a small fraction. And, uh, you know, it didn't feel like that at the time, but looking back, it was actually true. And, you know, Microsoft actually took pride in the fact that there was far more value being created on top of Windows than Windows created itself. And, you know, you can even contrast that to what Apple does with the App Store. Um, And there's an interesting um, challenge, and, you know, and that if you have, uh, it's very simple, right? If you can tweak the UI of your machine to work the way you want it to, you know, you can make yourself individually more productive, but it means that if you're trying to share a screen capture with somebody, uh, if you're trying to teach someone else how to use something and their system is configured very differently, they cannot benefit from your learning, right? Is that when we allow excessive, or sorry, there's a trade off there of personalization versus consistency. And so, you know, I think I can agree with you philosophically is that we want to empower individuals to define their own environment for maximum efficiency, but there is a there is a cost to that. And you know, one could argue that the cost will probably be socialized to some reasonable set of norms where we say, you know, um or you know, you have the button restore default default environment for debugging purposes. Um uh, or you get certain communities that, like with language itself, uh, you you find that people settle on social norms and they, even though language is not enforced, it is modeled in a way that people tend to conform to certain norms that make it easier for them to communicate. So that's just a trade-off uh, that we have to live with. The more interesting challenge, so I mean, you, you accept that there's a trade-off there, and you know we can argue about in practice how that plays out, right?
1: Yeah. Well, before you go on, let me clarify. Okay. Um I have, in my view, there are there are at least two levels of uh, interaction. So there's the data level that, um, at least for a single culture, uh, you know, to do the best that we can do, um, we have standard data types or you know let's call it that data types you know uh things that uh don't change you know somebody's uh, Maybe a name you call it the
0: schema thing. also the yes. way of organizing knowledge
1: Right. so these uh are viewed as i view as uh roads and and highways right that anybody can travel through and they're the same to anyone now uh, uh the data you know it could be you And you have a uh, um, a main interaction uh, platform, which is a car, a bus, a bicycle, a motorcycle. So you can define your experience when it comes to like, hey, take me from this place to this other place. And if you choose to use a motorcycle, you will have certain experience. If you choose to use a bus, you will have another experience. You can also choose to be all fancy and, and, and use a limousine. But in the end, you will go to this from one place to another, uh, but your experience will be vastly different. You, that's the defi- that's the definition that I'm talking about when I say, "Hey." Well, I, want you know,
0: I think that's a great example uh, because it also touches, touches the limitations of that approach, right? Like, so um, you know, for example, there are cars which have government-mandated throttles, so you can't drive over 100 miles per hour, mm. right? Uh, we have rules about who gets the driver's license and driving drunk, right, is that, you know, and in fact, that's actually one of the real reasons for standardization and centralization in software because individuals had computers that were configured with low security settings for their personal convenience that became huge security threats which threatened the entire network, right? So, you know, Microsoft insisting on mandatory updates was partly a cruel business move But also it was a generous pro-social gesture to force all these old buggy versions of Windows software that people personally loved out of the network, right? So there is a, getting back to our earlier problem, there is this pro-social challenge that is in tension with um, maximum personal customization. And again, I'm not saying that the choices they made were the right ones. But it is, um, even in this world, and let's think about this way, the, maybe the best we can hope for is you have organic communities which can specify norms of behavior that enable them to fulfill their, their mission and that people can have a relatively low friction way to vote with their feet if the norms are not working well. Right? So we say, you know, hey, if you want to access our server, we have a, you know, certain minimum security level that we expect you to to abide by to make sure that your system is not easily hackable. Mm -hmm. Right? And so right now we bundle all of those things, the manufacturer, the profit making, the authority, whatever. And you can certainly imagine a more disaggregated view where security certification because, I mean, actually this is the second point I made, and this is kind of where uh, Stallman's example is instructive, is that in order to actually build something powerful, you need some sort of commonality. And Richard Stallman did it originally with just his force of personality, which gave us the GNU herd, which as you may recall was the original impetus for Eric Raymond's Cathedral and the Bazaar. Which was not railing against open source versus closed source. It was uh, railing against centralized systems versus decentralized ones. And you know the alternative to that, of course, is um, Linux, you know, which was fully decentralized, but contrary to predictions in the 1990s did not take over the desktop. And the reason was that there is a rational ignorance that people want. They don't necessarily want to fine tune their system. What they really want is to use a system that helps them accomplish their higher purpose. And many people are more than happy to pay for other people to build something that is popular enough that they can sort of leverage the collective knowledge of the community rather than having to uh, figure it all out on their own. And, you know, there is a, um, as I like to say, to sustain empathy over long Uh, stretches of time and distance, you need an incentive, right? And right now, that's the profit motive, right? Is that, oh, if I can build a tool that millions of people will use, uh, they will be happier than they would have been without it, and I will be richer. And so, you know, I said, you know, capitalism has been a useful mechanism in that regard for allowing this sort of long-distance empathy across scale, Uh, As you are obviously well aware, it carries a number of downsides. Um, But it's worth saying that, you know, uh, this is a hard problem to solve. I mean, it's hard even with capitalism and profit motives to get people to actually care. I don't know if you've had any arguments with engineers, even at Apple, who are among the most user-oriented of all engineers, is like, well, I know this this offends your aesthetic sensibilities, but this is what the real human beings who use our com- computers need so that they can use, they can fulfill their purposes. And, you know, that's an argument we continually had to have uh, uh, just because empathy is hard. I mean, that's why we have product managers at Apple, right? Because you have to have someone whose primary empathy is to the customer and not solely to, to, to the consumers rather than the producers. So anyway, it's a, but anyway, as a uh, overall direction, I'm definitely in favor of it, right? As we want to demo- democratize access to these tools in a way, uh, and frankly, the, the, the I guess there's, twofold, there's two, two reasons for doing it from, my, from where I'm coming from. One is because existing elites always become corrupt and entrenched. I think it's actually, there's a term in sociology uh, called the iron law of oligarchy. Is that over time, whether you start with pure democracy or pure despotism, eventually it evolves into a sort of a, a circle of elites or oligarchs who may still claim that they're serving one or the other um, and do to a point, but ultimately their their purpose is to is to protect themselves. And they skew the systems to make sure that they and theirs. Uh, benefit disproportionately. And um, they can be more or less enlightened, more or less uh, brutal, but it, it tends to, things tend to go away. So, democratic access is necessary, one, to overthrow the oligarchs. Two, I think it's necessary, even apart from that, from just our general value of human flourishing, right? Because the reality is, I mean, this is Marx's useful insight, is that. Um, When you control the means of production, uh, there's a wonderful phrase I've heard called sticky knowledge. And this is a big thing in design and and in marketing is that if I explain to you what I want done, you can do it for me, uh, like with requirements. But that's a sort of, you know, low dimensional digital encoding of my lived experience. And if I can do it myself, I can bring my whole self, my tastes, my quirks, my foibles, my needs, my pain in a way that I cannot, right? So this is why Excel, for example, is so popular because they could try to explain to an IT department what reports they want run, but uh, there's so many things that they want to need that they don't experience until they've interacted with it themselves. And so, you know, the sticky knowledge so that I can build the tools that address my deeper quirkier latent needs is important. So those are both good reasons for one to democratize access to uh, the tools of technology. And by the way, it's not just computer technology, by the way, I've also been kind of stunned by how much even the tools of mathematics are so arcane and painful. Um, and many other disciplines as well. Um, And I've come to the conclusion that there's actually a sort of deliberateness about it, in that it does create a sense of elitism and exclusiveness. And even though people don't consciously try to do it, they are not motivated at all to undo it. Right? Is that once you've learned how to use something, most people are like kind of, happy about the fact that other people and, you know, when your job depends on it, it is a measure of security, right, is that, I mean, we always joke about the guy who writes horribly obfuscated code who can't be fired because he's the only one who knows how the system works. And, you know, you could say the same thing about our education system or our political system, is that the insiders who have access to the levers of power um, have very little interest in giving up their privileged positions.
1: Correct.
0: And and, and and be fair, it's not entirely irrational because in the short term, it's almost guaranteed to create chaos that will lead to worse outcomes for most people. Because if you give away access to power, it's probably the people who are most greedy and self-interested who are going to take advantage of it first. Because the people who are living, trying, busy trying to live... Sorry, the people who are most ambitious are the ones who are most likely to gain access to something that is widely available for the first time. And um, whether they're deliberately being evil or really think they're doing the right thing, like say, a Martin Luther, the results can be pretty horrific. So anyway, um, that was a very long qualified agreement, but I think we're on the same page there. Uh, Do you have anything else you wanted to say or shall I share my journey in this?
1: No, I'll go ahead and share your knowledge.
0: Yeah. So the way I think about, I think about this is is as a phase transition, is that there's a certain uh, trajectory that technology has evolved along. And it's in this stable state. And what I, you know, like when you, but then, you know, the situation changes and you can have... You want to get a transition to a new state, like going from a solid to a liquid or a solid to a gas. Um, and, you know, we like this idea of a new world where technology is as ubiquitous as and accessible as writing and where we have flatter, less oligarchic hierarchies and maybe more of a network than a hierarchy. So. I, in 2010, uh, for reasons involving internal situations that I probably shouldn't get into, or it's not really that secret or scandalous, but whatever, I had an epiphany. And I don't know, have you actually studied programming languages much? I know you wrote about them a lot, but I don't know if you know the history of software or how it evolved.
1: Um, uh, yeah, well, we'll software. Bit. Have you, have you heard of Lisp? Let's start, let's
0: start with there. Have you, have you heard of LISP? LISP? LISP, L-I-S-P. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So LISP was one of the earliest languages, and it was uh, really built around uh, a mathematical theory. Originally, it was a mathematical theory, and then a clever engineer hacked it into an actual programming language. Uh, and that was what they taught us at MIT back in the day. And it's still kind of the, the patron deity for a lot of computer scientists. Uh, because you can prove things mathematically about it, sort of. Um, And then, um, you know, there's a large Cambrian explosion of languages around then. But then there's a language called Algol, which led to C and Pascal. And then C pretty much was like an asteroid that decimated the planet. And pretty much all the languages we have today are derivatives of C, primarily, and to a lesser extent, uh, the Unix Shell which is uh, you know both originated in the early 1970s and you know java c objective c swift python Perl, they all kind of derive from those two branches uh all the while stealing different features of lisp which is interesting and then there's a few academic languages which start from the sort of Lisp mathematical tradition and then steal features from c so i had an epiphany as i was doing a research project and i said wait there's all these things that are true of Lyft and there's a certain simplicity around it. Uh, And then there's all these things around C which has simplicity and everything that's come since has been tended generally been more complicated. And so as a physicist, I asked myself, well, what if we started over again and just said, what is the simplest thing that would have all the benefits of both? And I had this epiphany which made me literally And, uh, you got, got up there. A uh, Ernest. Example, Ernest. And the the Ernest. And
1: the I Ernest, can hat. you hear me? Uh, it
0: is so insane. I don't even know Ernest. how to explain it to people.
1: You got up. After you said literally, you got up completely. So you have you have to go back to that.
0: Oh, I, I literally was afraid I of die today headphones of maybe starting to die. So um, I literally worried that I was going insane because the, the epiphany sort of undercut everything I thought I knew about computers and programming languages. Mm-hmm. And so the basic idea, uh, to oversimplify only slightly, is that uh, usually with document formats, right? Like SGML and HTML and you know, those tools we use for documentation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then you're familiar with data formats, right? Like uh, CSV or JSON. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was programming languages are really, really horrible document formats. Mm -hmm. And if you could replace programming with a data format, everything would become exponentially simpler. Uh, one is you know, the learning curve would be much shorter for you to learn it because you don't. Is that there's this what I would call an unholy obsession with syntax in the computer science programming language community, um, and that the idea is that syntax is mostly a distraction, which I can blame Noam Chomsky for in part, uh, even though that's probably too easy to blame Chomsky for the world bills, and then, but the idea is that is that actually. You don't need all of that. You can have a very simple data format, uh, which A, reduces linear. curve. B, once you have a data format, it's really easy to create a visual representation of it. Like there's a gazillion tools to try to create visual representations of programming language. But eventually you have to serialize them down to this really, really horrible document format. And any same document format is only a subset of a programming language. And so there's always this impedance mismatch. So that's the second benefit. The third benefit, which I actually didn't realize much later, is if you actually get the right semantics, you can use this as the same um, uh, language or representation of hardware and software. And so right now, we have a whole different world of tools and technologies for dealing with hardware you know, VHDL and uh, things like that. And then a completely different world for dealing with software. And both of those are done with really complicated, horrible programming languages that are wretched document formats. And so the vision is, is having this this technology, which I've called frame. Uh, Usually the version on GitHub today is called homo iconic C. Um, But it is, it's a single lingua franca that spans all the way from individual gates and logic all the way up to high level applications and servers. And so the idea is that this is I mean, the thing I have to do my startup for. And the the short answer for why I'm not doing it anymore is that I couldn't um, uh, explain it to anyone in a way that they would find valuable enough to support me or invest in it. And if I just tried to do what I thought would make sense and convince people, Uh, I would burn a lot of effort and not actually make any real forward progress. Uh, I did have a breakthrough uh, last fall when I was working with a guy who does reverse engineering of hardware for security reasons. So firmware in the computer is, you know, now that computer software has gotten more secure, thanks to Microsoft and others sort of enforcing it with an iron hand, uh, the firmware has become one of the primary vectors for attack which is, you know, the stuff that boots up your computer the first time. And so, uh, and that stuff is really ancient crafty technology. Um, and so this guy's job is to actually work on really secure systems to figure out all ways it could go wrong as a white sort of white hat hacker. And the tools he uses are atrocious,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: partly because of all the assumptions baked into how languages and computers could be. So when I explained to him I had this language that could actually give you a really simple data format for describing this stuff, he got very excited. Uh, I used to have lunch with them once a month that stopped with COVID-19 and other things. Uh, but that was kind of the thing. And the other technology I ran into along the way with that was something called RISC-V. You was familiar with uh, sort of the x86 architecture, which the Wintel is based upon. And then Apple yeah. at WBC last week just announced that they're moving everything over to Apple Silicon, which is basically built around ARM, mm-hmm. uh, an a openly licensed rather than a proprietary instruction set. RISC-V is kind of the totally free version. It was developed by academia based on all the history of not just elegant design, but elegant implementation. And it's available as open source, and there's open source reference implementations. And there are vendors who build, you know, chips and tools and simulators and things like that. So uh, there's an interesting community there. And so it seems like that would be, like, if... I was to get around to trying to rebuild all of computing from scratch with a totally open and democratically accessible architecture. I would basically start with RISC-V and Frame as the building blocks of that.
1: We, I share your, your RISC-V view because yeah, I've read about it and, and it's uh, really exciting in that it frees you from you know companies like ARM and Intel and AMD, but yeah.
0: Yeah, but the um, uh, the problem is, um, and this is the problem uh, which I guess we'll end on is that it's a good idea. If the whole world works like this, it would be awesome. But how do we get from here to there, right? Because uh, one, um, there's two hard problems which are related. One is how do you make sure you're doing the right thing and not just scratching your asynchronous? Because some of these things are like, if you get 100% of the way there, it's amazing. But if you get 95% of the way there and nobody can use it, you've accomplished nothing and wasted a whole bunch of time. And so, frankly, the only way I could find to resolve that was sort of this, I need to find a customer zero. Someone who actually says, yes, if you build this, I would totally use it. And that was this guy, so his name there. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is uh you know the perennial problem of uh of all the problems in the world, um, what uh, and in my own life, right, that I have to prioritize which are the things that will have the best payoff? And to date it has been uh not this. So the fact that this came up sort of organically in our conversation is encouraging. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think not this month because there's so many other things going on, Um, but it's the sort of thing that if some of these other things get resolved, it's worth thinking about um, what is a real human problem that we both care about it would be worth us spending some concentrated time trying to, because I have like a 80% running implementation of the language and then a bunch of specs, um, there. Um, but, and this is also the thing that I wanted to talk with you about maybe next time is, you know, you're living sort of on the marginal edge of existence and be wonderful to get other people to contribute resources to this or join us in this vision. Um, but the hard part is in articulating what exactly are we asking people to sign up for and what do we need from them?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, maybe we'll leave it there and think about uh, you know, in the context of information and sustainability and community is how do we turn this from just people named Ernest <clears throat> who used to work at Apple and are passionate about a very high level vision of what the world should be like into something bigger that other people can not just be a part of, but feel like they are gaining concrete benefit from, you know, even if just at a psychic level.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Sound like a plan? Yeah.
1: Sounds like a plan, but let me add uh, you uh, talked about programming languages. Um, there's a book called Software and Mind by Andre Soren that uh, I've read and it informed my um, uh view in uh, about technology about computing about uh efficiency about competence competence and incompetence uh so it essentially talks about um abstractions that um programmers get used to dealing with uh uh abstractions that let go of a lot of information when when they try to solve problems and that's why we have well that's the reason why We have programmers who don't know uh, The whole system that they're dealing with because they just they just focus on one little aspect of it That uh, some programming language uh, guru said, oh my programming language is the best. It's it's gonna fix everything Um, it, It does things automatically for you, but in the end the programmer has to redo things that maybe the other programming language that uh, uh, they were using, uh, you know, dealt with very efficiently. But because you know, an example that he he gives is SQL, you know, SQL, um, mm-hmm. a, a language that we used to deal with uh, data or files. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Before that, yeah, programmers were adept at dealing with data files and and finding information uh, very efficiently. But then, uh, you know, so, uh, I forget his name, but somebody came up with a theory of, of uh, the theory behind SQL that appeared to solve problems.
0: Well, relational but, data.
1: Re- yeah, relational relation,
0: data, Because yeah. right? before that, people were using hierarchical data structures, which were mm-hmm. very efficient for linear transversal, but horribly inefficient at traversing relationships. Right, And so to do simple structured data uh, was really easy, to do uh, uh, arbitrary relationships was incredibly hard. And so SQL democratized access to being able to do relational at the cost of people losing the skill of how to hyper-optimize across hierarchical databases and other data structures, right? And that's the thing about every layer of abstraction is every time you democratize access, you devalue the expertise that they're there, and then in the edge cases, it becomes harder to find someone who knows how to do that.
1: Uh, yeah, but then he mentioned that uh, because he actually maintained a whole uh, company's entire information system with uh, uh, one big uh, application. So, um, like he uh, he he explained how you know relationships in those you know raw files, how he you know, traverse them efficiently. Um so uh and that in SQL SQL does uh very you know some things very you know well uh, like uh, you know mm-hmm. processing relationships and things like this. But adding data to uh, a SQL database is not uh like the, the 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 people who designed that they didn't they didn't Analyze, like, okay, how do you add data to to this set of tables? Like, it's like they didn't address that point, so that we end up with these awkward ways to adding data to a SQL file. Right.
0: Another way to put it is every system has a few design points that it optimizes for, Mm -hmm. and it either explicitly trade offs or utterly ignores other points, which then become the pain points, some of which are conscious and some of which are unconscious.
1: Yeah it's right. like yeah with structured programming for example uh the mantra is don't use go to you know the right. go to statement but that's that that was a red herring the problem is not not using the go to statement the problem is that programmers didn't know how to structure their programs in a way that it was easy to right uh, well understand. yeah the,
0: the pain point at that time of that style of programming was that go to based programming made it impossible for most people to reason correctly about program flow. So structured programming was a way to make it easier for more people to reason about program flow by changing the level of abstraction. In order to do that, they had to get rid of go-tos.
1: His view is that these most people is uh, that companies wanted to, uh, they needed more programmers.
0: No, this this was was even, I mean, back then, uh, blaming it on companies is harsh because a lot of this back then was still academic. this uh, the a the theory and innovation and programming and Bell eighteen Bell Labs calling them uh you know corporate is, is probably unfair, right? They were more like academic researchers mm. than anything um, else. Yeah. And so there are reasons for that, right? So I mean I'm just sort of reading his perspective and seeing uh where it is, is that you know, the point is is that like, well, okay then how would you solve the problem otherwise, right? Is that, if, you know, the, the, the American question, if you're so, you know, smart uh, and you understand why everyone's doing it wrong, show us how to do it better and so we can analyze that and see what the trade-offs are. And, like, you know, to be fair, my beef, actually, with that is probably similar to his, which is calling conventions, right? With C and every other language, we have the sense of a function call. And the word function is itself imported from math um, uh, and has all sorts of weird connotations that I disagree with, uh, but because of that, you say when I go from this function to the next one, you have a call stack and you have a frame and all that stuff, which is horrendously inefficient compared to you know, a go-to or a jump mm-hmm. where, you, uh, uh, where you're manually managing the registers. However, manually managing registers will drive ordinary people insane and is still challenging even for advanced compilers.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: therefore, people said, okay, let's simplify the problem by having the idea that you only worry about what's happening in the function and we, the machine, will automatically manage and save and restore state. And then we spent a lot of time in the 90s coming up with inlining and things like that to reduce the function call overhead. So yeah, it was a trade-off and it was an unfortunate one, but given what they knew at the time, it it was better than the alternative. And the interesting question is, um, can we do better? I believe we can. Uh, and I'm very curious. You know, I'll try and look up some articles by that. I don't think I can read a whole book, but um, to see, because it's easy to rail about how something is wrong, right? The hard part, as I think has been a the theme of our conversation, is how do you design something that actually avoids that problem and doesn't create worse ones? And the other thing is, you know, designing something that works for me, but is not actually usable by the people who I claim I want to help. And this is always the challenge because there's two problems, parts of that, right? One is because people just have a comfort effect and they will stay with what's comfortable even if something will actually make their lives better. But then the second part of that is that, well, does it actually make their life better and how do you know that? Um, you know, I have built many products which I was sure people would welcome because it made so many things easier. But well, then I would discover, oh, because of their sticky knowledge, actually, this worked really well for me, but people who come with a different mindset, it's just intrinsically harder and more painful. And it is really hard to not design something that only works for people like us yeah. and blame them that it, they can't use it. And that sort of yeah. empathy is um, uh, has to be purchased at great cost and effort. That's
1: why the design has to involve everyone.
0: Yep. And that's, I guess, what we're going to talk about next week. All right. All right. Thank you, Ernest.
1: Thank you, Ernest.
0: Talk to you next week.
1: Next week. Bye.